This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel part of the New Books Network. Today, we are talking with Filippo Marsili about his book, Heaven is Empty, a cross-cultural approach to, quote, religion, unquote, and empire in ancient China, published by State University of New York Press. Filippo, thank you very much for agreeing to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. Sure, the pleasure is all ours. And uh, I want to start things off by um, inviting you to talk a little bit about yourself, your intellectual trajectory, and the way you came to the study of ancient China in general and to this topic in particular. Okay. Okay. I I was born in Rome, where I grew up and did my high school and undergraduate. And actually, I wanted to study classics, you know, my own uh, culture and civilization. And then I don't remember exactly why, for what reason, I decided that perhaps I should take a break and try to do something completely different, so that I have a different perspective on my own culture, being born in Rome and so on. So I take a class on, I remember it was on classical Chinese, and it was on Zhuangzi, the philosopher of the butterfly. I loved it. We were very few students in class, so it was very easy to, to establish a nice connection with the teachers, and I kept on studying uh, Chinese. Actually, I was studying Central Asia and art history. Then, eventually, I became a Sinologist with always the idea of going back to Rome, like an intellectual. And then when I was in grad school, actually, I studied both ancient Roman history and, uh, and Chinese history. So, uh, what I work on, actually, is not just China. It's the way, as someone who was born and raised in Europe, uh, I conceptualize and think about China, and how in the process I learn about myself. So I'm interested in particular in uh, how the classical tradition has shaped the way we study the past in ancient China. And uh, this reflexive approach is what I like a lot about what I do, because I always be you know, myself, and I'm interested in seeing how I look at things, how I think about you know, Asia or China. Sure, and that definitely um, involves um, you know, your approach to the comparison? Mm-hmm. You know, saying that uh, I don't uh, call it, it's comparative in a way, but uh, what it interests me is the way we think. I'll, I'll make an example. Actually, I became interested in this project when I was working as a photographer. Because I was a photographer before being in academia. I uh, started academia quite late. And actually, I was in uh, uh, southwest China. I was in Yunnan. And uh, I was a student, but I also was working on the side as a photographer. And uh, I started to take pictures going around the villages among minorities. And suddenly I realized that as someone who was born in Rome, 
trained in Western art, the way in which I would frame reality, I would freeze a particular scene, was shaped by years and years spent studying the classics. For me, you know, what a human body was, how I recognized people interacting. What I had uh, in mind was my own culture. Instead of basically knowing what I wanted to uh, uh, take pictures of, I was projecting my tradition, my expectation on, on what I was seeing. And I realized, oh, probably I'm doing this also as a student. I have some ideas, some expectations, something that I consider, I consider beautiful or meaningful, and I want to project it on the kind of China that I need to be so-and-so. So going back as an academic, I started to work on the way we think. And so what we, and especially as a photographer, you know, you have always to choose what to include in a frame, what in a picture, what to exclude, and what moments, what postures are meaningful. And I like, oh, I'm doing this as a historian too. So uh, before, you know, engaging with ancient China, I wanted to see how uh, my background, cultural background as an academic, as a human being, influenced the way I was looking at China. Even the question I was asking or, or the way I was including and excluding things that I couldn't understand. So it start, So this kind of is comparative in a way, but I'm more interested in a way we think and how uh, it's all, a lot about myself as a subject who studies how the background I have is going to influence the way I study China. And then I think that once I'm able to trace back all the conditionings, the ideas, the prejudices or expectations I have, it's easier to reconstruct you know, what anthropologists call anemic vision, the point of view that is actually produced by the people I'm studying and matter for them. So this is, I call it more reflexive than, than comparative because I cannot have but being Italian or having my background. And I want this background to be open and visible so that I can actually learn Sure, absolutely. And I think it's a reflexive move that all of us have to do at some point when we engage in comparative work. Um, but it's not easy, right? Um, so it takes time. Uh, but, you know, in the process, I think I, I learned something. I always say, I don't know if I'm learning much more about China than what, you know, is available out there, but I'm truly learning a lot about myself or helping like me to uh, approach, uh, let's say, foreign subject, asking uh, questions that help us really proceed and go on. Sure, sure. Right. And I think this is very visible in, in how you approach your, your main concepts, right? So uh, religion, right? It's And I'm using the same scare quotes as you in the book's titles, right? So um, that appears to be one of the most important, if not the most important concept here. And in the introduction, you provide a lengthy and very, very interesting uh, description of your approach to religion and what it actually means, right? So um, I was wondering whether you could tell us how you understand this concept in relation to China and the Mediterranean world. Okay, uh, first of all, probably, you know, specialists know that we don't find a word that can be translated as religion in ancient Chinese texts. There are many terms referring to, to different uh, rituals, different aspects of this, what we call the sacred, but this idea of religion that we keep on talking at different levels, academic and not, is a Western idea. Not, you know, the Asia doesn't have the sacred or something similar, but the way we conceptualize it and we use it. 
And I don't want to become too bookish here, but you know, I'll uh, quickly say what are the ideas that we associate with religion and I believe condition the way we study you know, non-European realities. The first idea is that religion has a lot to do with identity, that uh, the sacred provide us with an idea about what we are. And in ancient China was not like that. Religion was not a main part of identity construction. Another idea is that, uh, especially studying ancient empires, that in order to have political unification, you need ideological unification, which is achieved usually uh, by imposing one point of view about the sacred. And it was not so in ancient China. So uh, I, one of my points is that there was the sacred, there were rituals, but the empire was possible without the unified idea of religion. And for us, this uh, idea of religion unified is important because it's connected to European history from Constantine, Theodosius, and to the Reformation, the idea that having a common idea of the sacred helps you having um, shared morals. So the idea that the sacred is the foundation of morals, and it wasn't so in ancient China. Another important element that I think we keep on projecting on ancient China is that ideas about religion must be consistent, uh, systemic. So that defining our attitude towards religion helps us understand our attitude towards other aspects of reality. It wasn't so. So in a few words, uh, I, religion like uh, as a problematic term because the sacred in ancient China was not necessarily connected to identity, was not exclusionary, meaning that one acted towards a part particular deity didn't mean that didn't exclude the possibility of having a relationship with other gods. So in another way, a, a polytheistic approach. But the difference between the multitude of spirits and ghosts that we have in ancient China with the idea we have about politism, that these different spirits and ghosts were never organized in a uh, sort of uh, systematic, systemic pantheon that represented the, the complexity of society. And we see in China, uh, soon religion discourses about the sacred excluded from political discourses, and religion was more connected to the private sphere. sphere. So was not, religion was not part of discussions about political identity, uh, cultural identity, and so on. It was more private or local. So I, for me, it's important to talk about this because before I said, before I want to go back and study ancient China, I want to understand the kind of expectations and trace back their uh, formalization and their origin in Europe and see how these ideas, questions are, are affecting the way we study ancient China. And also the final question was going back to the photography example. What do we include under the category of religion? What is part of religion? You know, in, in the West, we have particular ideas that not, not necessarily uh, correspond to what was valuable for the ancient Chinese. So for the reason, you know, the first part of my book is about trying to understand what we have in mind when we think about religion and what we are creating or projecting onto ancient China when we study it. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's it's very apparent when you know, after doing this this uh, reflexive move, uh, you move on to, uh, you know, thinking about the novelty of the empire as a form of unified uh, government um, and the way, you know, it is connected or relates to the concept of religion. And, you know, by that point in the book and specifically in the introduction, um, the, the reflexive path is already established. So, um, 
you know, in talking about uh, issues of rituals and practices, you know, and their constant change, um, we can see how they factor into uh, one another. Um, but, you know, I, my, my follow-up question to, to this is, um, you know, how can we think about the rituals and the practices and or ritualistic practices um, in the confines of the empire and whether we have to change the way we look at the empire to understand what's happening both in China and the Mediterranean world uh, at that time. Okay, so uh, the, the starting point was the fact that in, in uh, Europe, in the ancient Mediterranean, we had the religious cult of the emperor. There was an important factor for the unification of the Mediterranean. The fact that everyone can look at a statue of the emperor and associate it with, in a way, the sacred nature of the empire. In, in, in China, was quite was, at the beginning, even as an undergraduate, it was quite difficult to find the same because we don't have images of, of uh, emperors. And, you know, images produced by, by emperors, like the Terracotta Army, for example, were supposed to be for, not for the living, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I was trying to think, you know, I, I think if I live in the Mediterranean, in, in Northern Africa, or in, uh, in the so-called Middle East, you know, I could look at the statue of the emperor, imagine myself as part of this commonality. But as a, you know, as a subject of the Chinese Empire, what, what would I have in mind? It was quite difficult because China was huge. Uh, the emperor, the capital was remote. And, uh, and it's clear that the connection between the center and the periphery was not as streamlined, uh, despite you know, the creation of a very effective system of communication was not that uh, easy to imagine. And also another important thing that we forget when we study you know, the, the unification of China under the Qin and the Han is that China had been centuries. And it's pretty clear from those historians who start to write the history of the unified empire that the memory of the past was lost, was not clear uh, in the early Han what kind of tradition had to be chosen in order to create a new legitimacy. And it's pretty clear that even though eventually the so-called Confucian faction would prevail, it was not obvious that the ideological choice of the first ruler of the Han would be the Confucian one. And as we know, the Confucian will create a rhetoric according to which uh, the moral rule of the country was achieved by following the examples contained in the ancient texts and actually being involved with local rituals, with spirits and ghosts, uh, was a distraction, actually made actions less moral. So we see an idea of the sort of symbolic role of the emperor, who's an example, who rules the country from the capital and doesn't need to get involved. What I think I not noted is that actually uh, this idea was connected with the political and fiscal idea of the empire. Basically, <clears throat> maintaining the, the emperor at the center of the empire uh, uh, associating him with a symbolic um, function also implied that local centers of power, 
economic centers didn't want the intervention of the state, of the emperor, as they were in the past. So basically, I think that, uh, especially Emperor Haudi of the early Han, he was trying to uh, resort to pre-existing uh, religious uh, traditions to uh, affirm, establish an idea of the empire that is based on the connection between the center and the periphery and the direct intervention of central power at the local level. Basically, the idea of, um, of an emperor who embodies cosmic forces, who represents military prowess, who travels and pacifies directly the country without uh, delegating or letting intermediaries to basically be between the center of power and the periphery and the, and the common people. So I believe that emperors in the early Han were using local tradition that would be eventually uh, surpassed, overcome, and marginalized by the Confucian rhetoric. They were using them to establish this sort of uh, centralizing idea of power, and there were sort of particular rituals that really depicted the emperor as an over extremely powerful military leader who traveled and didn't need intermediaries. And uh, and I think at the beginning of the Han, since uh, the Confucian, so-called Confucian tradition was not established yet, was easier for emperors to resort to these different traditions that came from particular areas of China. The problem is that uh, the sources were written by intellectuals who were either hostile or, let's say, ignorant about these traditions. And so, basically, it's quite difficult to have an idea of the kind of rituals uh, uh, emperors were using. Now, we hear a lot that many emperors, early emperors, especially emperors that envisioned the state as very strong and centralized, as being superstitious, as being obsessed with immortality. Actually, by looking at archaeology and our sources are not canonical, it's, it's possible to reconstruct a more coherent uh, usage of rituals by early high emperors. The fact that they were looking at models that would be rejected by the Confucius. Models that were for a centralized state, for fiscal control, for the centralization of all the important uh, productive activities. And so I make the case that in a particular period of Chinese history, particular rituals from particular regions were instrumental in, in, uh, in uh, promoting and legitimizing a form of rulership, a form of power that would be delegitimized by the Confucian. So centralized power, a strong center, and direct control of the resources and of the land. And so in my book, I try to uh, reconstruct the fragmentary uh, sources, the fragmentary account that we have in the hostile sources by complementing them with archaeology and excavated manuscript. And I think we can reconstruct a pretty, a pretty coherent vision of what the early Han Emperor was trying to do. And we shouldn't forget that the main historian of the Han Dynasty, Sima Qian, uh, had a very problematic relationship with the emperor whose uh, glory was supposed to celebrate because they had a very famous like a falling out and the emperor forced the historian to castration. And of course, we can imagine that, you know, the, the, the historian was conditioned by this, uh, this event. <laughs> it's 
sure, sure. Yeah, and actually, that it's very uh, good that you mentioned it because my next question was about your sources and the way we see from them the relationship between Sumatian and uh, the emperor, and you know how that tension, um, you know, can be seen or maybe influenced, and we can't see um, his writing or the records uh, kept at the time, right? And you know, it's also a matter of, of right point of view, uh, right? So who's writing? Okay, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be more specific, my book is not about uh, you know, a particular historical period. It is, but it's about how the sources we have uh, are reconstructing narratives about power struggles. And, and the interesting thing is that I think the, the, the kind of approach I tried is that so far, my colleagues were trying to make sense, often trying to make sense, of local rituals, of non-canonical uh, sources, of archaeological evidence by relying on uh, the Suji, the first you know, historical record we have about that. I make the case that Sima Chen clearly was not familiar with a lot of those traditions. He was now uh, called to, 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 to describe. We shouldn't forget that the ruling house of the, of the Han, the Liu family, came from the south from the state of Chu, which was considered exotic and foreign by people in the uh, central area. So in the tradition, religious tradition, the ritual traditions that were um, practiced by members of the Liu family did not belong to the background of Sima Jin. So I said, you know, probably it's not a good idea to try and reconstruct these rituals, these uh, sources, these um, artifacts we find in tombs by relying on what Sima Jin wrote. Probably we should try to do the opposite try to make sense of the fragmentary or hostile or negative accounts that we have in Sumatian about how these ritual practices by complementing them with what we found in tombs and or in texts like uh, the Huainanzu or the manuscript from Mahuandwei and actually makes much more, more sense. And I think that the fight, the reaction against the attempts uh, at establishing the monopolies that were carried out under Hawudi are mirrored by, by a lot of uh, ritual traditions that uh, Hawudi was trying to recover. And at the same time, the kind of debates are echoed in discourses about mythology, uh, about literature, about uh, the landscape, and so on. It seems pretty clear that the big, 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 big thing was, do we want a big state? want to uh, give up uh, local um, control over resources, or do we accept a strong state? And I think the compromise that Habudi was trying to achieve was, yes, we want a centralized economy, but I'll allow uh, you know, regions, villages to, to maintain their uh, cultural and religious diversity. And I will be traveling around the country taking part in and acknowledging these different rituals as long as they justify the kind of political uh, vision, economic vision that I have. The thing is that after Hamoudi's death, uh, the, let's say the Confucian faction prevailed, and of course his attempts were described as incoherent, as conditioned by his folly, obsession with immortality, but I'm, you know, he reigned for more than 50 years. I doubt that uh, he was so clueless, and especially if we consider that the only, uh, the most important politician that worked with him, the one that basically 
followed him throughout his career, and what he was famous for getting rid of his uh, politicians, was the one who was in charge of the economic and political reforms. He had a plan, and was trying to uh, justify it or legitimize it also through ritual means. It didn't work, and people who followed him completely rejected his model, even though we can reconstruct it through and so yeah exactly right so um i think um by now we have some sort of idea of um you know the approach and the tensions so um how about we go into you know into the chapters and um in chapter one you offer a cultural history of the application of classic and abrahamic ideas of tradition knowledge and morals to uh, early Chinese realities, and then you provide a revised, um, you know, or alternative interpretations of notions such as religion, myth, ritual, the divine, and so on. So, um, you know, I was very curious about uh, more details regarding the cultural history uh, that that you provide, and maybe also um, if you could give us a gist of your interpretation of these core concepts, right? So we talked about religion and, and myths and rituals so far, but, you know, maybe kind of positioning them into uh, the way chapter one um, approaches things. So, uh, in chapter one, first of all, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I try to deconstruct this idea of religion as we conceive it, that especially more recently, after, when people say after, you know, with the end of the Cold War, after 9-11, we tend to, when we talk about the world, we like to associate uh, like collective agency with particular ideas about the sacred. And so religion has become fundamental to make sense of the world. And I think it's a mistake in general, but it's also is a mistake if we talk about uh, pre-Christian or non-Mediterranean realities. Because, as I said, religion was not connected to identity. And also, briefly, as I say, these other elements, you know, religion as a morality, as a foundational uh, source for, for, for shared uh, behavioral norms. And in Asia, religion in China was not the source of morals, actually was the opposite or the same. And the, the idea that region must be uh, um, ideas about region must be organized in a philosophical and legal uh, system. The idea that every part uh, makes sense in, in the whole, and this, and also this doesn't apply to ancient China. But then I wanted to. This is a, the deconstructive part of it. Then I wanted to still to find some idea that could help me in, in, in categorizing the material ahead before recovering concepts that I think make sense for the authors of the sources I'm studying. And the ideas that I use, they are quite current in the world of ritual studies or contemporary studies in religion, are the ideas of myth and ritual. But myth, myth uh, interpreted as uh, just narrative, a narrative about the past that is supposed to, in a way, make sense and justify uh, norms that we adopt today, not necessarily having to do, we you know, with heroes and gods, but narratives about the past that we consider foundational. And so I try to apply the, 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 this category and choose those narratives that, in my sources, uh, have the function, in my opinion. And then ritual... Just I interpret the ritual in a very, very broad way. I could talk about hours about that, but then like, going back to my 
to my uh, to my usage. Uh, ritualized uh, performances or, or actions that were supposed to justify the extension of the Chinese Empire in <clears throat> space. In other words, the narratives that I call mythological were used, or those narratives were used to make sense of the, real, the new reality of the unified polity that China represented under the Qin and the Han vis-a-vis -vis the past traditions, even though they were uh, not as in touch as we imagined with their own past. And ritual, those mm, ceremonies that were supposed to provide a meaning, justify the way the new kind of power was occupying the land, reorganizing it, and redistributing power. So, in other words, myth narratives that dealt with the relationship between power and the past, ritual, those acts or ceremony or performances that explained how the current power envisioned its relationship with space, with the country, with the landscape, with the resources. And so I divided my group in, in, in this big, uh, let's say, narrative uh, sections. Then going back to the constructive part, I realized that at least for the historian I was working on more than anyone else, uh, Samachian and the Shiji, uh, what we call religion, the sacred, uh, was organized into, into groups. One was the, all those, uh, mm, uh, let's say, notions about the supernatural were, were in a way uh, described in the classics and that uh, in the end were important because not because of the object of worship, uh, but because of the kind of uh, behavior that they would enforce and establish among their practitioners. In other words, the so-called Confucian ritual. So not, not important because of the object of worship, but because <clears throat> establishes, celebrates social hierarchies, notions of propriety. And according to this vision, the direct intervention of the supernatural, the extra human, as I call it, was not important. Actually, could be even uh, problematic. And this is uh, something that at least the author of the books I write on considers important and fundamental to establish a moral uh, uh, reign, moral kingdom. Then, according to the, the same author, Semachen, there were other kinds of, of rituals that were not described in the books that Confucius had chosen and promoted. They were regional, they were about which we didn't have written sources necessarily, and that all involved the direct intervention of spirits and ghosts. And, and of course, the intervention of spirit and ghosts, according to Simachian, would bring into political action an element of uncertainty and confusion and probable immorality. And so I think I found out that, according to Simachian, uh, uh, ritual actions by, by his ruler could be uh, assessed and, uh, and uh, appraised and judged by applying these, these categories. Are actions that are consistent with what is written in the books uh, uh, recommended by Confucius and, his, uh, and the students of his tradition, 
or are traditions that are connected to local rituals and imply the direct intervention of spirit and ghosts. And so, in other words, in Chinese, I call them liyanzi, uh, different categories of actions that made sense for the author of the books that I were, um, I were focusing on. So, in other words, these are the two categories are those that replaced in my narrative the categories connected to our notions of religion I was talking before. So the first part is, let's say, uh, deconstructed. The second part is trying to recover the logic, the criteria of inclusion and exclusion applied by the author of the sources I was working with. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, you know, that also connects to, um, to the ways in which uh, the political power is interpreted and disseminated and, you know, responded to uh, in many ways by, you know, the, the people who are close to the emperor, by Sima Tian himself, but also, you know, by people who are in, you know, living and, you know, spending their days in the empire and, um having these rituals at hand and, and performing them. And that's what chapter two is trying to to do in, in my perspective. And you do emphasize the relationship um, as seen in the records between ritual, text, and historical memory. And I was wondering, uh, what uh, do these relationships look like, specifically when it comes to memory, text, and what you described as uh, the li, the ritual? Uh, it's pretty clear that, that at least according to Simachen, and that's like quite surprising because Simachen, you know, we know that according to the Confucian rhetoric, the Zhou dynasty uh, was the paragon and the actions of the rulers of the Zhou dynasty uh, had to be used as examples by, by all moral rulers. But actually, Simachen tells us that he was going over this, you know, the fragments of the documents connected to the Zhou dynasty which he agreed had to be taken as models. But he said, uh, it's difficult to make sense of them because the language is quite different from the language we use today. And even when I think I understand the context of those rituals, the object they were using and, and the action they were performing don't make any sense to me. So it's quite surprising that, you know, for Sima Chen, writing in the, the second, the first century BCE, the Zhou didn't make too much sense and their memory and lesson was almost completely lost. For his followers, people who came after, you know, 50 year century, was clear what the Zhou meant and would become clearer and clearer as, you know, the rhetoric of the empire would be established. And so basically, I think that what Sima Qian is trying to say, and it's also problematic to, uh, to, to establish what uh, Sima Qian really thought, because he couldn't express himself in a restricted way, because the texts uh, you know, went through interpolation and process, and, and also uh, because we tend to interpret uh, 
is, let's say, is a historiographical approach through the so-called letter to Renan, and it's not clear if the letter was, you know, a, as an example of historical impersonation, or was actually written by him. But this aside, it's pretty clear that Simachen says it's just uh, it's pointless to try and recover the memory of the past and establish the particular memory of the Jew as our model, because time five centuries. And we don't understand the source. What we can do is, it's clear that we can establish an emotional connection with these characters, with these rulers, with these ministers, who had an idea of a community, had a moral idea, and we can emotionally connect with them and be influenced and inspired by their example, the, the difficult choices that often they had to make. And so for him, historiography is a... It is a way to establish this connection with the past and to choose those examples can, that can inspire us in making political choices. So for him, is this memory, emotional and moral, established with the past that, of course, goes through uh, the literary elaboration. So it's a kind of relationship with the past that implies a very uh, high level of education and, and, uh, and training. So it's an elite kind of vision. Whereas what his emperor was trying to do is to establish <clears throat> uh, different connections with other constituents of the country, local communities, and uh, develop the rhetoric that Basically, an emperor doesn't need intermediaries. He can directly connect with the people by rituals that make sense for, for everyone. And, uh, and so for more than memory, for the emperor, what uh, was important was performance, the possibility of, of immediately uh, legitimizing particular actions or particular political choices that could make immediately sense for, 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 I say for the common people, but, but it's very difficult to understand what kind of connection there were between them for the common people, even though we know he liked to travel and to sneak out the court. Probably often this rhetoric of popular religion was used to counter the position of the official at court that were always telling him, you know, look at the old books, uh, moral uh, emperors uh, were not that active, they stayed, you know, uh, put and were able to run the country by examples in other ways. They were not appropriating all the resources and demanding direct taxation. We often forget that, that when uh, Liu Bang uh, defeats, you know, after very various events at the Qin and established the Han, he controlled only one-third of the country directly. Two-thirds he gave to the old, old, those old families that had been dispossessed and marginalized by the Qin. And I, I argue that this was the compromise that allowed you know, the, the Han to, to last. Some areas were directly controlled, but he did not dispossess. He left things in place for those fundamental aristocratic groups that were, had a big role in its victory against uh, Xiang Yu and the Qing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that, you know, speaks of the emperor's um, foresight 
um, to say so. And the way he um, he conceived of his own power and the way he wanted to connect with, you know, what we think of common people through these, um, you know, rituals or through an understanding of, of practice. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I want to say that, and, and I, I remember as an undergraduate, I got quite, quite interested in uh, this emperor because... <clears throat> It's very popular, you know, because he ruled for so long. There are so many stories about him. But opinions about him are, can be so different. You know, he was crazy, effective. He was also almost a romantic figure. He was completely inconsistent. Then I was reading Tang Dynasty poems in which, you know, I don't remember exactly now off the top of my mind, but this poem in which I said, oh, I wish I could go back to the time of Han Wudi when even an emperor could get directly in touch, you know, with, gods and goddesses. So the myth of Hanwudi as an emperor who had direct connection with the divine, with you know, supernatural forces and mysterious forces, survived at uh, the popular level, survived in known you know, traditional circles. And this fascinated me. Then looking back uh, at the sources, he was actually interested, almost obsessed with all kind of super, you know, what is contemporaries and critical superstitions or uh, local cults or popular religion. And I think he played that card uh, as a way to escape or, or have a, a free hand in dealing with court politics, relying on non uh, let's say, non, non-canonical you know, rituals to, to, to carve for himself some freedom at times. And also interesting that these popular cults would be recovered by even his successors whenever uh, rulers had to deal with personal losses or personal pain or personal tragedies as though the, the let's say, you know, I'll call it like this now, the official Confucian version of the religious role of the emperor was not enough to provide an emperor as a human being with relief, personal relief. It was too abstract. That in the end, when in crisis, emperors would resort to, you know, those kind of old rituals and superstitious things, much more powerful and effective, and were connected to, you know, regional traditions or the, the South or the East Coast. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, and I think also the the sacrifices, the si, are important, right, in this um, in this story. And you know, we've been talking about the the ritual, which is you know translated from Li. But um, I think uh, the the conducting of sacrifices, um, you know, it's it's worth mentioning here. And you do um, have a different approach to in the conceptualization of the two. Um, so, you know, I wanted to kind of probe around and, and ask you to say a little bit more about, um, you know, the notion of sacrifice as well. Yeah, so, uh, as I mentioned, Hamidi was particularly fond of, 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 of these sacrifices that were not described in the old classics and that entailed a form of direct contact with the, with the, with the supernatural. Because some of the sacrifices were connected to the Yellow Emperor, that Sima Qian was trying to establish as the first, uh, let's say, cultural uh, leader of China, completely devoid of uh, supernatural aspects, were asked for uh, for the emperor and the so-called Fan Su, who were you know surrounding him at the time. The Yellow Emperor was particularly important because he achieved immortality. 
through some alchemic uh, practices. So there is a lot of ambiguity in the sources because, you know, again, we, we, we translate uh, sacrifice or ritual. It's not clear we were referring to what I call Lee or what I call Sue. And uh, what I see there is that Hawudi, uh, the emperor, was quite interested in selecting or promoting or recovering those rituals in which uh, the emperor was not conceived as a passive uh, recipient of tradition and example, but someone who the world needed in order to be pacifiers. Someone who was able to defeat enemies of the people, was able to, to, to regulate flattened mountains, open a path, quell demons, and whose power was connected to the power of um, cosmic forces. And so he liked those rituals in which these elements of the of the emperor who travels on his war chariot and doesn't have enemies and is in keeping with the will of the people. So for him, uh, sacrifice often meant to establish this connection, to establish the, this model of the ruler. In other cases, and you know, I didn't develop a lot of that in my book, even though I probably deserved another chapter, it seemed that uh, the emperor used uh, religion as a way to be religion, meaning these sort of traditional, uh, local traditions and, uh, and local rituals to escape from the court. And it's, it's quite interesting that it's all, here and there in the source we find his expressed expression of his desire to be by himself and be in the woods or be somewhere else and live behind even his family. And it's also interesting that, you know, the, the Tong and Shan sacrifices, there's a lot of literature about them, and, and we rely on Sima Chen and other sources to reconstruct these sacrifices that were supposed to be the, the most important point, the most meaningful point of the reign of Hawudi. But actually, it's interesting that uh, it's, not, it's not a very seldom that actually Hawudi performed these sacrifices by himself. He left everyone behind, and at the end, only had a, a charioteer with him. And this charioteer actually is, was the son of the general Wu Jubin. And also, if you read the sources, we learned that the charioteer died after three days of the Tanashan. So basically, there were no witnesses. And so I, I don't have enough evidence to say that. But also, for me, fascinating to see religion or sacrifice for the emperor as a way to be alone, <laughs> to be individual or to be part of the cosmos or to be in touch with other traditions almost as though the emperor was trying to fight back the official role that everyone was trying to to impose onto him you know picking from different past traditions you know of course it's a literary suggestion it's fascinating but I, for me it was something that it was worth noting in the sources this escapist element of sacrifice, you know, there is the political one, the emperor as the as the ruler, as the one who keeps uh, the country pacified and in order, but also as an individual, what times needs to you know, get lost, as I say in the final chapter. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. I <clears throat> actually have a question um, 
four questions after this one <laughs> uh, about specifically this. But, um, you know, it is very, um, very rare, right, that we find and sometimes learn in, in school about these modes of escape or, you know, the, the emperor as not necessarily being under constant supervision, but as an individual, you know, or a representative of an empire of a, or of a state that goes into um, you know the wild or goes on a trip to connect with with other forces or you know meet um, other rulers um, and it is not followed by this um, you know kind of um, mount of people right so um, this uh, this is very rare or at least I didn't find it in in many sources and um, you know I think um, as as we progress into chapter three uh, we also find more about the hegemony of monotheism right that that you mentioned and um, you know it, and it's both an Abrahamic and non-abrahamic historiographical uh, tradition and you know this kind of uh, monotheistic view on what the, the the morals should be and what the emperor should be what the you know the god should be um, uh, most of the time determines our own readings right so i thought um here then specifically in chapter three uh there was a very interesting comparison that you you do between fortune and the role of fortune in polybius and the role of heaven in the records right and the way the emperor connects with the heaven and you know i wanted to hear a little bit more uh, about this Okay. Yeah. Thank you for for the question. Because I noticed from you know the first reaction to my book that that it, there was some probably my, my bad some, some misconception about the way I use you know uh, the Abrahamic model. I'm not saying, of course, that my colleagues you know in all fields are implying that in ancient China we can talk about the model of religion that was Abrahamic. No, absolutely. Of course, very few of my colleagues would do that. But and notice that even though I say, you know, even though we get rid of the label, we still project onto ancient China some Abrahamic uh, modalities. And I think like the idea that uh, unification, political unification comes together with ideological unification, and then we have an empire, you tend to create a, a system of ideas that as a whole is going to help to create harmony. And I think then uh, I argue that this idea uh, is the, fr- the fruit of, 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 of our you know, European history and contemporary history. But the idea that political unification must is the result or goes hand in hand with ideological unification was not automatic, was not conceivable. And, and so uh, automatically conceivable. And, and so what I try to do is let's try and look at and the ancient sources without assuming this theological model, the idea that, yes, we have unique political unification, it means that there is moral unification, there is that the world makes sense as a whole. And what I try to do in, the, in the, uh, chapter three is to see, to look at two, two historians, we dealt, you know, Polybius and Sumashen, who dealt with, you know, different forms of unification, that of the Mediterranean under the Romans, and that of, you know, the the, the, the areas that we call China today under the Qin and the Han. And what I found, I think I found in Sima Qian, is that he is, you know, is the person who is looking at all books, uh, trying to establish a new narrative of the new empire that is also in keeping with a tradition that he now considers uh, fragmentary and almost completely lost. And he finds a lot of mention of heaven, 
heaven was expected to be the last solution, the explanation of everything, you know, and whatever we're projecting onto it. And, and that also gives the, the title to my book, that Simachian realizes that, that heaven uh, is there in the sources, but it's very difficult to uh, apply these ex- or, or to recognize these uh, expectations of moral unity and coherence in the actual uh, polity that the, the Qin and the Han established. This is hypocrisy, and he realizes that the, the unification of China was the result of expediency, was the result of, uh, of shrewd behavior, was the result of, of, of backstabbing, and that at least in his own time was impossible to live up to the model that they found in the sources. And what I noticed that at least Simachen uh, in the books that deal with the uh, Unification of China, especially the biography of Liu Bang, the, the first emperor of the Han. Whenever he mentions heaven, it's always ironic. It's never to, to define what heaven is, but also, oh, we don't understand, it's problematic, oh, must, must be heaven. And all in many circumstances in which he uses heaven, it's really ironic. When there is something that is clearly uh, confused, immoral, Surprising, counterintuitive. Oh, must be heaven. You know, often has been his famous sentence. You know, is when he says, you know, it's so strange that someone who was born in a, in a you know in a almost godforsaken area, a poor guy from the someone who no land managed to become the emperor of, of China must must be heaven. He said, no, must be heaven. And, and then if we read the, the Suji, which is a huge work, uh, very complex, we realize that for Sumachan, heaven meant chance, expediency, and hypocrisy. And also in the famous sense, you know, someone who no land, who becomes the emperor, I focus on the no land. And I argue that probably Liu Bang was chosen as the leader of the, of the um, alliance of aristocrats, because he was the only one among them who didn't have his own aristocratic background and his own land. So basically could be the leader of a coalition and would be less problematic because no one would see him as an aristocrat. And so would be the perfect leader for that compromise between a state that centralizes but also leaves aristocratic lineages with the privileges they had before. And I think Tsumashan had understood that. So he's continuously talking about the emptiness of, of Liu Bang as a leader, who just would repeat, parrot, whatever his uh, associate would tell him to say about the reasons why he was an emperor. So I think Sima Chen is brilliant in understanding that, he, of course, he had to play his role of official historian, but and he found himself with an established tradition to a certain extent, even though it was clear to him that it was not obvious to interpret it. And he uses heaven in an ambiguous way, on hand referring to the moral connection between political power and universal morals that we find in a certain way in the ancient sources, but also pointing at the hypocrisy, the violence that had brought China to become one. So, 
and uh, and also I argue going back to you know the comparative or uh, cross-cultural model that because of our expectation of unity kept on projecting onto Simachev's notion of having all these expectations of ideological, cultural, and moral unification that Simachev himself did not see, just projecting onto it. Now, heaven was in the end sort of a rhetorical residue of an ancient tradition who didn't make too much sense at the time. And he uses it because it's there and it's powerful. Right, and then he also, <laughs> you know, um, makes use of, of memory, right? Uh, or what he kind of uh, remembers. And as a, mm-hmm. for him, it was clear that emotionally it was possible to, to be influenced, inspired by, 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 by historical characters who had particular qualities. And he envisions his work as then of resuscitating in a way or making available these examples through, you know, the literary means. You know, uh, some scholars argued that since he was a eunuch and he couldn't carry out, you know, ancestral sacrifices personally, you know, to maintain the connection between the living and the dead of his family, ritually was incapable of doing it because of his castration, the literary means was the only one you could use to maintain the connection between his ancestor, real ancestor, cultural ancestor, and the, and the future generations. So in a way, his work replaces the rituals that the good, the good Chinese would carry out to maintain the connection between the living and the dead. It's a very fascinating uh, interpretation. And I think in part it's true. Right, right. I mean, it is very fascinating. And, you know, I mean, at least in, in the European tradition, uh, writing, and I'm sure all over the world, but, you know, I'm just more familiar with that, that, uh, you know, writing, you know, having, you know, written poetry or having written uh, different uh, works of, of, of literature will maintain or maybe assure immortality, right? So... Um, yeah, it seems a concern of so much, and ritually and culturally. Another interesting thing is about, you know, the, the, the function of the historian when, when analyzed in China is that what we call historians in ancient China, in addition uh, to recording the past, they also had to record uh, uh, the heavens, what happens in the sky, you know, all kind of phenomena. So what, what the relationship was just recording events in the past and in the present. And it is the idea that, that there was a connection and the, and the past could, 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 could teach us how to behave in the present because actually what happened, circumstances of the past could, could, could reproduce themselves. And so this idea, the circularity of the experience, not, not only like uh, from an intellectual point of view, because you know by re- recovering the past, uh, you know the past is always present, but also because in, in the end, the canvas where we are acting, the cosmos works according to the same rules, and what worked in the past could be working today. So this idea. Of using the past to project uh, and shape the future in a way that is, you know, I think, feature of Chinese historiography. Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, in in the past being used as a heuristic to understand uh, the the present and the future is also apparent in models of rulership, um, right? And in chapter four, you do engage with the notions, uh, right, of time, myths, and, and memory. 
But uh, more importantly, um, you know, the this uh, interpretation of the importance of the Yellow Emperor as a model of, of rulership, right? So um, you do have um, three different uh, approaches to, to this and how they impacted the, the rulership of Emperor Wu. So, uh, you know, I thought that was um, a key moment in Chapter 4 that, that pushed your, your argument further. Sorry, I didn't hear the, the last part of your question. Oh, I was just asking about the, uh, the, the three different interpretations of uh, the importance of the Yellow Emperor as a model of rulership for Emperor Wu. Oh, yes. So yes. How... Uh, 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 mm-hmm. yes. I argued that you know, it seems that in that period, uh, the Yellow Emperor was quite hot. You know, everyone was talking about him. And, uh, and there are a lot of debates and literary disquisitions about, you know, who was the, the Yellow Emperor and uh, what kind of rulership, what kind of power he represented. And for me, it's quite important that the Yellow Emperor is the protagonist of Chapter 1 of, of the Sajid, the work of Samajan, and is the first ruler. It's quite interesting because the, 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 the narrative that Samajan creates about the Yellow Emperor is not confirmed or is not similar to anything else we find in that period. The Yellow Emperor was, you know, as I said, there was the Associated with immortality, was uh, connected to cosmic forces, was a warrior, was an alchemist, would be eventually associated you know, with the medicine, the body. And I argue that as a, an author, as a writer, uh, Sima Chen and his father were, were probably were in writing the biography of this. Uh, of this yellow emperor, who in the chapter written by, by Sima Chen doesn't have any supernatural powers, they are not important, and he's not immortal, he dies and he has his tomb and so on, was attempt establishing a good model for uh, that eventually a, a good hand ruler would, would follow. And so he, in a way, was adding out from the model he created all those elements that would connect the yellow emperor to to, to, to spirits and ghosts, to the invisible invisible forces, those kind of elements that, according to Sima Chen, would bring into uh, political action uncertainty and probably immorality. So, and, and uh, in, in the chapter, I analyze how uh, the literary debates becomes uh, the stage in, in which different notions of power are, are debated and compared. Whereas, on the other hand, we have the, the Sumachan trying to follow all these stories about, uh, about the Yellow Emperor that were told by you know, this uh, alchemist, uh, Fang Su, coming from you know, remote regions of, of barbarians that, that of course, uh, Sumachan condemns. But in addition to the element of immortality, that again, you know, might be seen as an escapist element, anti-family element, and when we see anti-family rhetoric in, in Hawadim, opinion, it's just, just anti-family as such, is anti-particular aristocratic families that were claiming particular privileges, fiscal privileges, connected to the attempts of the empire to tax them, you know, to expropriate their, you know. The the, the, the 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 monopoly they had on, on, on production of coins, salt, and iron. So 
if the, 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 the myth of the Yellow Emperor as a champion of immortality, on the one hand, yes, is escapist, is individualist, but it's also anti-particular aristocratic position that was, in that particular period, uh, reacting against the attempts of Hamilton's government to establish state monopolies and centralize everything. Uh, we forgot this, that Hamoudi would be the first emperor after Liu Bang to really establish the Junxian control, the direct control of the state over all China. Basically, uh, breaking down, uh, removing all the, the, the heirs of those families that have been fundamental for the revolution that eventually uh, gave power to the Liu family and Liu Bang. So when we hear anti-family rhetoric in Hawadila, we'll be always cautious. It's not just abstract families or, you know, a particular anti-aristocratic, anti-aristocratic, not in general, anti those particular families that didn't want the state to be so intrusive. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's it's quite obvious why they were so uh, against the state being so intrusive. But on the other hand, uh, right, so the, the emperor had uh, issues of legitimization, you know, in, in mind, probably, or, you know, the whole idea of legitimization of the Han, right, in terms of... No, uh, no, no. Mm-hmm. It, 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 this term is pretty, I think, it's pretty easy to understand. Now, at the time, it didn't have media. So they had the, the literary medium that was used by the courtiers, the people around the capital, people. And then they had ritual. And so uh, notions uh, about political models or attitudes were just played in that stage, the ritual one or the literary one. And these are, you know, conflated. And I see, you know, the, the mythological narrative one and the ritual performative one that are all used by different actors, you know, in different ways. I try, what I try to do in my book is that, you know, I never talk about myth or religion in abstract. Whenever I talk about a particular myth, I try to refer it to particular sources written in a particular period and connect them with particular political and economic context so that those kind of metaphors that we're using can be translated in a particular cultural context. Because, you know, the problem with people like me who study religion is that it's so easy to use it in a sort of meta-historical way. So these ideas or notions, even provisionally as universal, what I'm trying to do as a rule is always try to reconnect them to particular cultural, economic, and political context. So I, I, try, I think I don't do it, but I never talk about these things in abstract. So when we talk about models of rulership, in particular rituals, I just talk about, in the end, like 20 years and, and the kind of literary exchanges or ritual exchanges that are happening in that period, starting together economic reforms, uh, clashes between the state and provincial uh, elites, and how these were reflected in myth and ritual, ritual reform that were happening in those few years. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think by doing that, you also uh, avoid the you know, mental slippage that sometimes we all, you know, have uh, with using categories across temporal categories or um, even going meta a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, especially if one reads, you know, the, the title of one book, and I want to be an mystic on purpose, not using a sort of a Buddhist kind of uh, uh, sentence, too, because 
I mean, those things exist and, and influence the way we think and ask questions and, and, and create criteria of exclusion and inclusion when we think and study. So I wanted to, the first half of my book, I want to be as explicit as I could about all the conditionings, the, the prejudices, the expectations I had of someone who was trained as a classicist, you know, a photographer in Rome. And, and I think, you know, probably there are mistakes in my book and things will be updated and surpassed, overcome. But I think that what I could contribute with was, you know, being open about the kind of motivations and the questions that led my research, you know, and try to put them at the forefront so that I could eventually, in the, in the more honest possible way, go back and recover an original, uh, emic, uh, native perspective on those issues, trying to, you know, with their own words, to the extent to which that is possible, which is not. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, certainly, yes. And, um, you know, besides what we, we've, we've talked in the past few minutes, uh, Chapter 5, uh, right, also drives home this idea um, uh, or the tension between what you call a religion for the emperor and an imperial religion. And, you know, this, is, uh, this goes throughout the book, but, you know, Chapter 5 and the conclusions uh, draw it home. So, you know, I wanted to, to um, ask you uh, to, um, you know, tell, tell our listeners oh, yeah. more about it. Thank you for this. You know, it, it makes me think of the reaction I often have when I go and you know, give talks around the world, and especially in China. You know, even though I'm explicit about that, and then I say, I anticipate the kind of, of pushback I can receive for saying what I say. But nonetheless, I have this reaction often. What do you mean? You know, there is no imperial religion. What do you mean? The ancient Chinese didn't have a religion, which is often seen as offensive to a extent to which it's seen as having no religion means having no morals. Right. And I say, how about you say you know, heaven is empty, the emperor didn't have a religion, the emperor was always uh, practicing you know, sacrifices. Going, this is true. I said, but that was his own religion. If anyone else tried to emulate, to ape the emperor and carry out the same kind of, to worship heaven, would be beheaded immediately. Uh, it's quite interesting that, that in, to me that, you know, the term religion, Zongjiao, arrives in, 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 uh, in China at the end of the 19th century as a translation of the Japanese uh, term Shukyo, who in turn had taken their, invented this term for the translation of the German and English term. The interesting thing that the major reformers of Japan, when they want to transform Japan in a few years, they look at the West and, and they look at, you know, we have letters written by all the secretaries who went around uh, the world with the Japanese leaders observing Western you know, institutions, societies, and so on. And I remember this and it really struck me about someone observing uh, Christianity in the US. And they were saying, all these people, you know, worshipping this guy who was a criminal, you know, it's not respectful. So I don't understand why, you know, Christianity can be so important. But something that's really important to us is that it doesn't matter who you are. You can be the president of the country. You can be an aristocrat. You can be really educated. You can be a farmer. They all worship the same God. They all carry out the same ritual. They all together. 
and this thing shapes the way they are. And since they one as a nation, it's easy to carry out uh, <coughs> swift reforms. We should apply something like that. And eventually they created, you know, the, the divinized emperor and the, the cult of the emperor in Japan was fundamental for the for the for the reform that would transform Japan in, in a very short time. And after you know, the, the end of the first Sino-Japanese War, uh, Qin Dynasty reformers were looking at Japan as an example. How come that they were able to carry out reforms so quickly? Because they found this unity around this, this sacred nature of the emperor. Probably the Chinese of the time said, we should do something very similar. And of course, in Chinese style, they said, yeah, but we might have had this already. Probably we had a state religion in the past. They look back at the uh, Easter Han historiography and they found uh, Dong Junshu and the idea of a, a Han religion. And of course, they worked on that. But my point is that, uh, of course, the emperor had, had his own rituals, but religion was not conceived, the kind of ritual, as, a, as working on a shared background of morals as creating the moral unification between the subjects and the and the rulers. It's something that we connect that is natural for us, I mean us Europeans, because of the history of the Christian Roman Empire and the history of Christianity in uh, in Europe. But the idea that the sacred, the supernatural, the invisible can be used to create shared morals and have a country on the same page is not universal and has a particular history in the West. So going back to, to, to your question, to the, you know, the religion of the emperor and the religion of the empire, uh, under Rome and, and especially at the end of the Roman Empire, yes, we have an imperial religion, which was instrumental in the creation of, of a, a community. In China today, the sacred is never used I mean, actually now it's changing a little bit with the uh, revival of Confucianism as a world religion. It's another question. But in Asia, it's not that automatic or natural to use the sacred and visible as a common ground on which to establish common institutions and traditions. So yes, the emperor had a religion, but was not a religion that shared with his subjects, who <laughs> behaved immediately <laughs> if they, they dared. <laughs> Sure, absolutely. To worship heaven, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's all very, very fascinating uh, to to think about these things. But you know, I'm afraid we've taken a lot of your time. So no, my, um, but you know, my last question regards uh, your next projects. So what are you working on at the moment? Oh, okay. So yeah, I spent years, you know, working on the relationship between you know invisible things. Uh, invisible entities, also invisible things like ideas, concepts, frameworks. And then I said, I want to do something completely, you know, it, I cannot say refreshing considering the topic, but I want, to say, I want to look something completely different. So I'm now looking at the relationship between power and the body, punishment. How I'm looking at the, uh, both the narrative of, of political power in connection with justice, 
and punishing uh, illegal, destructive behavior. Fascinating. So uh, my current project is on uh, on the relation between violence and uh, and uh, and power, especially when looking at uh, torture and imprisonment, and also in slavery. The, the, now, exactly, I'm looking at mythological, of course. I know as my, my I'm used to doing that. Continuation of our previous work: How in mythology, in ancient myth, the, the necessity of having laws was uh, justified in, in literary and historical sources. And then I'm comparing the actual application of law in ancient China. We can do it because we have a lot of scary manuscripts now to the way laws were described in, in, of course, in the legal text, but especially in, in the historiography. So it's kind of narrative about this justification of rulers who, in addition to being moral paragons, also have to enforce <laughs> <laughs> some punishment. How that is... Uh, very interesting. That is very, very fascinating. And, you know, I'm looking forward to, to reading your next books and articles. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I thank you very much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure and uh, I wish you a wonderful day. How are you? Thank, <laughs> yeah. thank you so much, Filippo. <laughs> thank you.